0: Although this morning we're going to be speaking about a story that many kids like, actually. Jesus walking on the water, and a lot of grown-ups like it, too. I love it. so. But we are very thankful to be here this morning. Uh, as I said, the whole clan is here. My new wife, Emily, been married for a year and five months. And uh, by the grace of God, we are planning to head back to the Islamic Middle East this August, which is really quite amazing, considering all that God has brought us through. It's really uh, a wonderful testimony to God's faithfulness, and we'll be sharing a bit about that. But we are very thankful to Brush Prairie as a church. I've known of you, and you've known of me for many, many, many years since I was a little guy, about this high probably. And um, thank you for all the ways that you have stood in, in support of us. I have some of my long-term supporters are here in this body. Some people have supported me for maybe nearly up to 30 years in this body. As a missionary, and I just found out this afternoon, just a few moments ago, that Brush Prairie Baptist is going to be taking us on as one of their regular supported missionaries. So, thank you very much for that. And uh, have you had the offering yet already? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is—we're very thankful for that. You guys have been a real help to us about two and a half years ago, when my wife Beverly went home to be with the Lord very suddenly and very unexpectedly. We found ourselves in uh, back home in the states only for a few days. In a new place, and a new house, without any furniture or anything, uh, you took up a love offering, and your love offering came out, we needed a, a washer and a dryer and a refrigerator and a stove, and your love offering came out almost to the exact dollar of those four items, which we had purchased just a few days before the offering came, saying, Lord, please bring that, because we needed all those things. And God has been so good to us and so faithful to us, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. Um, if you missed the Sunday school hour, I'm sorry. I think it might be recorded, but um, Emily, my dear wife, my better half spoke there about how the Lord's brought her uh, through some of her things, uh, the death of her husband, Chris, and how the Lord brought us together and, start, and is uniting us and merging our two families with a desire to go back to the Islamic Middle East to work with Syrian refugees. And August is our departure date. We're shooting and praying for that time period. So, but we have this text before us this morning, and I'm kind of long-winded, so I better get going because I promised I'm going to stick to 45 minutes. Oh, boy, I better get going on that right now. But this is a wonderful text, and I'm so excited to open this up with you. And let's have a word of prayer before we get into it. Father God, we come before you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for every good and perfect gift you give us. We thank you for your word. And even this morning as we gather as brothers and sisters in Jesus, I pray that you would speak to every heart, every son and daughter of yours in this room, and speak to them the words that you would have for them. Words of encouragement, words of faith, words of direction, Lord. Words of strengthening. Lord, even a word of rebuke, if that is if your purposes in each person's life. We pray that you would accomplish your kingdom purposes. We pray that you would build up your church. We pray that you would send forth laborers into the harvest field. And we pray that you would cause each one of us to have a new awareness and a new understanding of your glory and your person and who you are and how faithful you are and how loving you are and how powerful of a God we serve. We commit our time to you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have before us this amazing text of Scripture, and I do think it's a very important passage of Scripture. I think it's important because as the very last sentence of this passage that you just read says, two very key things come out. And the first key thing is that this is the first time in the chronology of the Gospels where the disciples see and recognize for the first time Jesus as the Son of God. It's finally hit them. They finally confess that. They finally say, you are the Son of God. And it's also the first time in the chronology of the Gospels where the disciples, this group of Orthodox Jewish men, worship a man, Jesus Christ. They worship Him. This is very important. I mean, we just read these words, but let them strike us with their heaviness. This is the Son of God. This is the promised Messiah. We finally recognize that, we're going to proclaim that, and we're, going to, we're in such awe, we're going to worship you, which is almost anathema, as Jewish Orthodox men, to worship a man in this boat. And I think these are, of course, very important things, because as A.W. Tozer so rightly says, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. What you believe about God, what you know about God is the most important thing about you. And so our text is neatly divided into two halves. We have the first half dealing with Christ and His walking on the water, and we have the second half dealing with Peter and His response and His walking on the water. And it's my plan and desire to focus on the second half, but there's no way we can do that without, of course, dealing with Christ and His walking on the water, the first half firstly. And so that's where we'll start. Uh, We'll start in verse 22 of Matthew chapter 14, where we read, it says, And immediately He made the disciples get into the boat and go before Him to the other side while He dismissed the crowd's. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. So immediately it follows and lends us right back to the immediate situation, which is Christ feeding the 5,000. And every synoptic account of this story, it's right immediately, the evening after, the feeding of the 5,000. And he disperses those massive crowds, 5,000 men, maybe 10,000 people, that he has fed with five loaves and two fish. And he disperses them with the word. And then he focuses on his disciples and says, now you guys go to the other side. And then he goes up to the mountain. So they're dispersed, the disciples to the other side of the the Sea of of Galilee, and he goes up on a mountain by himself to pray. And um, we know why he did this, because according to John chapter 6, verse 15, it says, Jesus, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force, that is the crowds of those 5,000, take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So that was, that's why he did it. This was not the right time. It was not the right way for Christ to be crowned king. There was still a cross for him to suffer, a death for him to die, and a resurrection for him to be raised up from to become our savior for our sins. This was not the right time for that. And also we know that this is connected to the feeding of the 5,000 because in Mark's account, Mark chapter 6, verse 52 Mark goes to the very end of the account when Jesus gets into the boat with them, and he he closes with these unusual words. He says, utterly, excuse me, when Jesus got into the boat with the disciples, they were utterly astounded because they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They did not understand about the loaves. In other words, the Holy Spirit, the author of this text, is tying back the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water together. And for some reason, these disciples, like so often is the case for so many of us, after seeing so much of God's glory and even just seeing an amazing miracle, an amazing demonstration of God's power, feeding 5,000 plus people with five loaves and two fish, they still did not get it. And they were astounded still because their hearts were hardened. They didn't quite fully grasp it. Um, so now we have the disciples three to four miles out, smack dab in the middle of the lake. Now, we know this is the case because John chapter 6, verse 19 says that the, they were 25 to 30 stadia out, stadia, a Greek measure, measurement system. And we know that the Sea of Galilee was 61 stadia, so 25 to 30 is about halfway through it. And so these disciples are halfway out into the middle of the lake. And um, verse 24 says that the boat was beaten, being beaten, literally tormented by the waves for the wind was against them. And John adds that the lake was becoming rough because of a strong wind that was blowing. And so, once again, we're back to very similar conditions of the previous storm that, once again, in the chronology of the Gospels, only happened just a few weeks ago, maybe a few months ago. They're back on the sea, back to a storm, and if you remember about a year and a half ago, I spoke on that exact passage, the first storm, when Christ stilled the waves in that storm. But now the disciples find themselves in a very similar situation once again. And Mark adds this interesting phrase. Mark chapter 6, verse 48 says, And he saw, note that, that is he, Jesus, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them, or as the New American Standard translates it, they were straining at the oars. They were making headway painfully, they were straining at the, wo- at the oars, and he saw them. Jesus saw them. So Jesus saw them three to four miles out in a storm, During the fourth watch of the night, which is the darkest part of the night, it's the fourth watch, it's the 3 to 6 a.m. watch period, Jesus sees them in this dark storm so far out, and um, they've been rowing now for at least 8 to 10 hours, 8 to 10 hours they've been rowing for, making headway painfully, straining at the oars. Now, I don't know, I don't do a lot of rowing or that kind of stuff, but three miles in nine hours, how would you rate their success? (laughs) I mean... Are they making great progress? They're not getting very far. Straining at the oars, making headway painfully is a very good description of what's happening to them. And it appears to me that the Holy Spirit wants us to know and feel that there was a growing sense of despair, of exhaustion, and even fear amongst these men. They were growing weary. And when Jesus does eventually come to them, he appears to them as a ghost coming to them. And in their culture, in that context, that would be kind of like an an omen of impending doom, if you see a ghost coming towards you. It's like a moment of impending doom. Things are not going well. We're tired, we're exhausted, it's late, we're not making any progress, and here comes something like an apparition towards us. What's happening? Um, Eight to nine hours in a storm is a long time. And sometimes in the Bible, it really seems that Jesus appears to take a very long time in coming to the rescue and help of of his servants, does he not? Have you ever felt like that? I think of Mary and Martha when they sent word to Jesus about their brother Lazarus in John chapter 11. They sent word very cautiously, very carefully, very earnestly to Jesus. Jesus, he whom you love is sick. And when Jesus heard it, it says he stayed two days longer. He stayed two days longer. But he had a purpose then. He had a purpose that he would glorify himself and glorify his father through the the death of Lazarus in a way that nobody could ever imagine. And he has a purpose in this situation as well, a purpose now, right here and now. But in verse 25, we're told that in God's perfect time, during the fourth watch of the night, and in his perfect way, in a totally, really unexpected way, Jesus comes to them walking on the water. And I know we all know this story. We know it. We know it from Sunday school. We can all picture in our minds that little flannel graph, you know, with... You know, Jesus put up there in his cape flowing and the disciples, and we can all see it. We, we, it's all, we know the story like the back of our hands, so we think. But try and put yourself back in that situation. Who would ever think that this manner of rescue would come to us, that Jesus would actually come walking on water to his disciples? So in verse 25, Jesus comes to them and he does three things. He calms them, he comforts them, and he commands them. He calms them. He comforts them and he commands them. He calms them with his voice. The text says, and Jesus spoke to them. And I don't know about you, but when I find myself in very difficult troubles, things that are way over my ability, that are hurting, that are painful, to hear the voice of Christ, what an amazing thing to hear Christ's voice come to you in your trial and your trouble. Be still, Scotty, and know that I am God. Or cease, be still, wind and waves. Or, in this world, you will have trouble. But do not fear. I have overcome this world. It's great to hear those kind of words in our troubles, in our trials, in difficult times. And that's what he did. He calmed his disciples with his voice. He comforts them with his presence. He says, take courage. It is I. And those Jewish ears would hear, it is I, I am. They would hear that. This is one of those allusions to the great I am of the Old Testament. Jesus using this phraseology as he talks, I am. Take heart, disciples. Do not fear. It is I, I I'm here. And then thirdly, he commands them to trust him, do not fear. Because this was a fearful situation. And they're afraid. And that's why God said that's why Christ yells out to them, says to them, Do not fear. Um, we often need to hear that. I don't know about you, but as a missionary to the Arab Muslims in the Middle East for 28 years, I need to have that in my repertoire of verses that I have down all the time. Isaiah 41.10, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxious look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I've counted 191 times that I've counted in the Bible where God tells His servants, always His servants, His close ones, The ones who love Him, His faithful people like Paul and the prophets, do not fear because they find themselves in fearful situations, 190 times. And almost every time that command comes with the promise, for I am with you. I'm with you, which is a great comfort as well to our hearts. And so often in the Middle East, I've had to Take out verses like that as I found myself in scary situations with people I'm sharing the gospel with who maybe absolutely reject what I have to say. Or secret police who are interviewing me and wanting to kick me out of a country because of of the gospel. Very often I found myself in situations like that. But we have this command from Genesis to Revelation, from God to his servants, do not fear for I am with you. And we need to hear it time and time again. But by walking out on the water... To his beleaguered and bewildered disciples, Christ reveals two key aspects of his person to them. One, his power, and two, his loving care, his loving kindness. Um, very simply, these are not, this is not rocket science, but I don't know about you guys, but I find myself needing to go back to the basics time and time again in the Christian life. Jesus, his power, his faithfulness, his loving care for me are things that I need to have daily going through and so what he does when he comes out of them he does he demonstrates very clearly his divine nature his power who could do this no prophet in the whole old testament ever did this not elijah not even moses not david no one did this walking on the water who can do this only god's powerful messiah only truly the son of god only someone like that can do this in john chapter 20 verse 30 you know john the gospel john also records this incident But John says of all Christ's miracles, he says uh, in John 20, 30, he says, These miracles are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This really happened. Jesus Christ really did walk on water. This is not just a story, an analogy, a, a picture. It really historically happened. That's why we worship Christ in many ways, his divine nature, fully God and fully man. Miracles in Muslims. One of the things that I share with Muslims all the time in the Middle East is the divine nature of Jesus Christ. They believe he was just a man. He was just a man. He was just a good prophet. And so one of the things that I love to do, and actually that ministers to Muslims and is an effective tool in Muslim evangelism, is take them through all of the Gospels where Jesus just did it. He just walked out. He did not walk out, isn't Allah, with the permission of Allah. He just walked out. He didn't say, with the permission of all of Lazarus, come out from the grave. He just said, come, Lazarus, come forth. And I take my Muslim friends back to all of the miracles of Jesus, and I say, see what he does, see what he did. No man ever did this, not even any of the other prophets. Jesus is totally different from anyone else in this capacity. I emphasize very much, I referred to this in Sunday school class, that he's not just a prophet. He's much more than a prophet. I often emphasize the fact that Christ is raised from the dead. All the other prophets, and they recognize this, they have tombs. They know where Abraham's tomb is. It's right there in Hebron. They call it their tomb. There's a mosque built over it there. They know where Jonah's buried in Nineveh. They know where all of the prophets are, even their own prophet, Muhammad, is buried in Medina. They go to visit his tomb. But I often emphasize with Muslims, Jesus is not buried in the ground. And Islamic theology recognizes that and knows that. They know Jesus is raised up. And I say, he's the only one alive. Christ is alive forevermore. And these are tools that I share with, with Arab Muslims. So his power is here. But secondly, his loving care. I think the di- disciples must have been thinking, well, well, if Jesus was here with us like he was just a few weeks ago, everything would be all right. But he's not here physically with us anymore. Remember in the first storm, Christ was in the boat with them, sleeping. Remember that? In this storm, he's not there. And the disciples said, must have been thinking, he's not here. He can't help us. He can't even see us. But actually, we know from Mark, he could see them. Christ was watching them totally. You see, in the first storm, Christ was in the boat with them. And in this storm, he's on a mountaintop far away. In the first storm, the truth of Christ's presence with us in trouble is emphasized. And in this storm, the truth that we're never too far beyond his ability to reach us and bring help or aid is exemplified, never too far. No extremity, no barrier, no impossibility can prevent our Lord from coming to us to rescue, to bring help, to bring aid, nothing. He saw his disciples and he came and he sees you in your various trials and difficulties and struggles and sorrows and hurts and pains and betrayals. He sees that all. And he is able to reach. He's able to come to you. Even when you're going through life and you're feeling, it is hard. I'm straining at the oars. I'm making headway painfully. But he's able to come. And the big lesson in this section, in this first section, is that Jesus is Lord. And nothing can prevent him from coming to rescue. Not even water. Not even water. Not even a Jordanian jail where you find yourself suddenly, without your wife and family, even knowing that you're there. Not even a betrayal. Not even the sudden unexpected death of your wife that hits you in a totally unexpected way and knocks out of equilibrium all of life that you kind of, as you knew it. He is able to meet us. And I think this is very important. Do you see that? Do you know that in your struggles right now, in where you're at? Do you know that? Do you believe that? Young people, you will have to get this beat and built up into your hearts Now. Because there will be days coming, evil days, hard days, days of darkness, days of sorrow when you will need to know, my Lord can reach me even here, even here in this situation. Emily and I, if we were to get up here, we could go on and on and on and speak about, yes, the pain, yes, the sorrow of losing a young spouse when you still have children in the house. But we can also speak about God's faithfulness and how he proved himself to us over and over and over again to be a faithful God, to be a loving God, even in our deepest sorrows and grief, how Jesus could prove that he could reach us and take care of our physical needs, our emotional needs, our spiritual needs, our financial needs, whatever, however he was there. He's given us to each other now in marriage and is just one of his many wonderful gifts that he's given to to us in the the midst of even our sorrow. Even when we found ourselves lost and our hope was lost, we we fell even into doubt. Even when we took our eyes off Christ, he never took his eyes off of us. And this is something I'm going to get to in a little bit here towards the end of this chapter. But he held us even when all we had left was a, so to speak, Lord, help me. Lord, save me. I'm drowning kind of faith like Peter had towards the end. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So, excuse me. This is my wife's hot pink bottle. I left mine at home. And... <clears throat> but isn't this a beautiful picture of how things are right now? How things are right now. Christ is no longer physically with us like he was with the disciples, is he? Where is he? According to Romans chapter 8, verse 34, Christ has been raised, and he's seated at the right hand of God in the heavenlies, and he's also interceding for us. Life is filled with storms and straining at the oars, so to speak, making progress painfully. And sometimes it feels like He's taking way too long to come to us, and our faith is being tested to the breaking point. But in this life now that we have, this post-justification, pre-sanctification life called... Excuse me, post-justification, pre-glorification life called sanctification, one of the truths we need is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. we just sang it. We're called to walk by faith and not by sight to walk by faith and not by sight. This is one of the great truths that we need to live a life of glory to God right now, right here and now. How do we do that? How does our faith grow? What are the principles that we need, need? How do we apply faith? So in verses 28 through following, we have Peter's response to what Jesus did. And that's how I see this text. This is Peter's response to the revelation of Jesus, to him right now. And he responded in faith. And there's a lot of lessons I think we can learn from this exact situation here. That's why I've entitled this sermon, Faith That Responds to God. Um, But before we get to some of these things that Peter did, I want to just draw out four points. We need to ask a simple question. Why did Peter walk on the water? What were his motives? Why did he do it? Was it pride? Was it a presumptuous faith? Was it arrogance? Was it a sinful, foolish thing for him to do? As some very good commentators would suggest. I don't think so. As I've looked at this and look at the life of Peter, I don't think that's what's going on here. There's no doubt he was a prideful man at times, and he did have arrogance at times, but is that what's going on right here? I don't think so. A couple of things. Note, please, that Christ actually allowed Peter to come to him. He said, come. And Jesus is never party to our sinful fleshly desires. And then secondly, note, there's no rebuke of condemnation from Jesus to Peter. Just a gentle reminder about his little faith, which, by the way, is a significant increase from his no faith in the first storm. So, um, just a just a gentle word. Um, and then look at Peter's character. Peter himself, his character is well known in the New Testament. He was a zealous man. He was all in or all out. Uh, he always wanted to be near Jesus. Someone has said that Peter followed so closely behind Jesus that whenever Jesus stopped, Peter bumped into him. And I think that's probably true if you look at his, his thing. And, and I, this is not a bad thing. You see, I think that Peter recognized something that we don't always recognize. That is that Christ's life was a paradigm for his own life. He was to emulate Jesus. Or as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Or as John would say in 1 John Whoever says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner that he walks that he walked. And that's what Peter's doing. So I think Peter's faith, faltering though it was, pleased Christ. It was Peter's way of responding to what Jesus had just revealed about himself to him and the disciples. It was his way of saying without words, "Lord, I know that you are Lord of all, and I really want to experience that in you. I want to live for your glory." I love you, Jesus. Call me to be with you no matter what the cost, and I want to be there, Lord Jesus, even if it means walking on the water, on the waves. I want to do that for your glory. But like Peter, our faith grows through adversity and through through our experiential walk with our Lord Jesus Christ and through the trials we go through. And so we have these lessons, and there's much we could say about this on the whole Word of God, but we are right here in this text, and so I want to keep my thoughts limited to what's here. And I have four, major, four basic lessons from Peter's response of faith to Jesus. Number one, his faith, and this is very simple, but his faith responded to Jesus. His faith responded to Jesus. Verse 28 and 29 says, Lord, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And, he says, and then it says, and as he was going, to Jesus. Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you. And he was going to Jesus. It's very clear. I can just see it in the text. It's a very Christocentric faith. It's not Oprah Winfrey's faith in faith. It's not Walt Disney's just believe kind of faith, which is really a faith in yourself. It's not Islam's blind faith, but it's a radical Christocentric faith. And that's, and that's, when I talk about faith, I'm thinking, for the Christian, our faith must have an object, and that object is forever and always Jesus Christ. That's it. My definition, my working definition of faith is, faith is trust in, commitment to, and dependence upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. Faith is trust in, commitment to, and dependence upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. You should write that down. That's a good definition. It's a faith that looks to Christ. It's a faith that looks to Christ. Like Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 would say, we are to run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, looking to Christ. A faith that runs with endurance looking to Christ. Looking to Christ in his word. Looking to Christ in his promises. Looking to Christ in his work on the cross for us for my sins to grant my, to grant me forgiveness. And righteousness and right favor with God to give me a right standing before God so that I can enter into the throne room and pray during a time of need. Looking to Christ expectantly. If God be before us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Looking to Christ in a first love relationship. That's the focus of a Christian life. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is eternal life, John chapter 17, verse 1, I think it says, or verse 3, 1. This is eternal life that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent, knowing Christ, a focus on Christ. Who or what is the focus of your life? Who or what are you living for? Who or what are you actively depending upon? And if your answer is anything other than Jesus Christ, it's not going to be strong enough to save you eternally from God's wrath for your sin. Secondly, Peter's faith responded to the word of God. Verse 29, come. It's a very simple word. But the Lord of the universe says to Peter, come. Romans 10 verse 17 says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. And one other aspect of faith is that faith is our response to the revelation of God. When God reveals himself to you, Through the Word, what is your response to that? Will you trust Him? Will you obey Him? Will you do it? Whatever it is He asked you to do. In this case, it was a simple, clear, one-word command. Come, Peter. I'm the Lord of the universe. I can walk on water, and I command you to come on water. Will you do it, Peter? Will you step out of the boat? Will you come? Peter responded to the Word of God. You know, we too, as the Christian church, we've been given a few words, have we not? Peter was told, come. And we have been told, go. Go to all nations. Go to all people groups. Last night during the dinner, we, we heard that there are still 1,108 unengaged Islamic people groups. That is 1,100 people groups, varying between thousands and millions of Muslims in that particular people group that there is no missionary to, no one taking the gospel to those people. That's just the Islamic world. There's still much to be done, my friends. Much to be done. And we, this should be a thing that marks us. We should be a people marked by the Great Commission. Jesus, when He saw the masses, He had compassion on them as downtrodden and distressed people, sheep without a shepherd. And He said, pray, Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send forth laborers into his harvest field. And then he sends out his, mission, his own disciples into the harvest field. As Christians, we should be involved in praying, supporting and sending, and or going. And all three of them. This should be a thing that marks the church of Jesus Christ. And this is another impossible thing. <laughs> Missions is very impossible. Uh, it's a very impossible thing. Which brings me to my third point. That as Peter's faith responded... In spite of, I don't know exactly how to say this, but it's kind of a negative point. Peter's faith responded in spite of the impossibilities. May I direct you to walking on water? (laughs) It's not a common thing. We don't do this every day. How about walking on water during a storm to make it a little worse, a little more difficult? How logical is that? How practical is that, Peter? How wise is that, Peter? What about your family and everyone else, Peter? We don't walk on water. It's quite impossible. How about taking the gospel to Arab Muslims of the Middle East? In 97, 1997, after about a 10-year period in Egypt, I was kicked out of Egypt for sharing the gospel. In 2007, I was arrested and kicked out of Jordan for sharing the gospel, after about 10 years there. In 2010, I was kicked out of Syria, for about, after about only a year and a half in Syria, sharing the gospel. There's great opposition Great opposition. When the light of the gospel goes into the darkness of the Islamic world, there's great opposition. And quite frankly, it's impossible. We know that with man, salvation is an impossible thing anyway. It's a divine work of God, it's a sovereign divine work of God. So we've been told to take this gospel to the ends of the earth, to every people group who are already in sin and predisposed, just uh, pre (laughs) whatever, (laughs) they're set against you. They have a predisposition to the gospel, sinful natures. They see the the message of the gospel as foolishness to man and take that message and share it and build my church. A very impossible task. But Peter's faith responded in spite of all these impossibilities and all these impracticalities and all this illogicalness, really. Peter could respond to this impossible situation of walking on water because he's really responding to Jesus Christ, who he's just seen, is the Lord of all. And nothing is too difficult for my God. So we can go back to Hebrews chapter 11 and read that by faith, Noah in reverent fear built an ark. It's never rained before. So how logical is his ark? But that's what he did by faith. And Abraham, he obeyed when he went out, not knowing to the place where he's going with all of his family and his household and his servants and the sheep. He doesn't know where he's going. How practical is that in 2000 B.C.? How practical is that? By faith, Moses refused all the wealth and power and position in Egypt and chose to be mistreated with the people of God. How wise is that if you want to be the redeemer and savior for Israel? Why not use your power? We could say that Peter, if we were to put him in Hebrews chapter 11, we could say, Peter, by faith, Peter walked on the water looking to Jesus based on his word because he knew who Jesus was. He knew he could trust Jesus. You see, what God calls us to do... Will always be filled with impossibilities. It will. When God calls us to take the gospel to the Muslim world, when God calls us to go into missions, when God calls us to trust Him for whatever circumstance, even for the salvation of a son or a daughter, or a husband or wife, it's impossible with man. We need faith. That's why we need faith. If you don't need, if it's not an impossible thing for you, then you don't need faith. Just go do it yourself. With your own strength and your own resources. But taking the gospel to the Muslim world, being involved in missions, seeing the gospel going forward and salvation of souls, that's an impossible task with man. You see, ultimately, what you believe about God will evidence itself in how you act. What you believe about God will evidence itself in how you act. Do you believe he's able? Do you believe he can provide for you? Do you believe he will meet your needs? Do you believe he'll be there for you when you're in trouble and you're in fear? If you do, Amen. Then you know your Lord and go forward and act in faith. I've recently been challenged by my own, by my, my wife. How logical was it for Emily to marry me? I mean, I'm a you know pretty attractive young man, you know, and everything. But <laughs> but put that aside, you know. Um, I had five kids, five grieving children, and I was a grieving man. And I'm a few years older than her. I've Got this wise gray hair, but you know, a few more. And she only had one little, beautiful, cute, quiet, no, she's not that quiet, <laughs> uh, little girl in Minnesota. She had a great job, very good-paying job, just one person and one little five-year-old daughter, and she was quite self-fulfilled, quite fulfilled in her job there. But she left all that, gave it all up, gave up a support team of 10 years through the cancer of Chris for 10 years, gave that all up, and left Minnesota, came here, married me, Who's a missionary of all places to the Islamic Middle East? It's not like a missionary to Hawaii or something like that, you know. It's we actually, in fact, our, our real honeymoon really was about six months after we got married in Beirut, Lebanon. If you can, if you can imagine that, of all places. But um, I've been challenged by that, and really, in many ways, I would say she's quite a woman of faith, quite a servant. She's left all that behind in obedience. She talked a little about, about our marriage and some of the lack of romance and some of the, the obedience that was required in us getting, coming to know, to, to be married together. And so we're very thankful. I've been challenged very much by her faith. And really, though, it was not logical. There was a lot of people who could line up a lot of reasons why she shouldn't marry me. Um, when I lost my wife, Beverly, in a moment, I found myself faced with impossibilities. Really, I felt they were absolute impossibilities. How do I take care of and provide for five children when I've really hardly ever, and I say to my shame, hardly ever cooked a meal before in my life? How do I do that? I've lived over there for the better part of 21 years with my wife and my family, and now suddenly I find myself over here again with nothing. No car, no house, no, no nothing. Our suitcases, everything we had was still in Lebanon. How do we move forward? And on top of all that, I had this sense of the calling of the Lord from way back in my teenagers to be a missionary to the Muslims. And and I had come to realize pretty early on I needed a helpmate to do that. I'm just one of those kind of guys that needs a helpmate. There's some guys that don't need a helpmate, but I needed a helpmate. And I need some water. <laughs> but I needed a helpmate. I knew there was no way culturally I could return back to the Middle East with five children and no wife. It wouldn't make sense, it was wrong. And I said, Lord, how do I go back? How would you have me go back? And now it's been two and a half years by the grace of God, and here we are, all praise and glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's sending us out again. And that's really quite an amazing miracle. It's quite an impossibility with man, I feel. And, uh, and when you think of knowing who I really am, someone to actually marry me, that's even more impossible. So, um, William Carey, The father of modern missions said that we should expect great things from God and we should attempt great things for God because we know who he is. That's my part. I add on to it. When we know who God is, that should be our expectation. We should attempt things for God in faith. Daniel chapter 11, verse 32 says, The people who know their God, if you know your God, if you know what he's like, if you know his loving kindness, if you know his faithfulness, if you know his power, the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. What are you believing Jesus for? What steps of faith are you taking right now in your Christian life? For holiness, for sanctification, to bring glory to Jesus, for the Great Commission. What are you doing? What great exploits are you asking Jesus to give you? Last night, Tim Stevenson spoke during this message, and he said, If all of your prayers were answered today that you've already prayed, yes, if they were answered yes, what would be changed? Would just your little family be changed? Or would the nations be changed? What are you praying and asking God for? We have a great God, a powerful God. We should be asking and expecting great things from our Father. And lastly, faith, this is the fourth point faith does not respond to the waves or to the circumstances. Verse 30, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid. When he saw the wind, He was afraid. When he saw the effects of the wind, when he saw the waves coming up, when he saw the circumstances, when he saw what looked like a really bad situation, he became afraid. But when you step out in obedience to what God and faith, to what God has called you to do, really the waves are none of your business. They're not your business. Keep your eyes focused on Christ circumstances will always scream out against us. Worry will rise up. Financial questions will rise up. Visa questions. How do I get a long-term visa? How about my kids' education? Um, Security. What about a house? All these questions will rise up. There will be concerns, but they're really none of our business. Take them to the Lord. Keep our eyes focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the verses I have in my mind all the time is Psalm 123. Behold as the eyes of a servant look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes will look to the Lord our God until he is compassionate and gracious to us. This continual sense. How does a servant, how does, this, how does a, a maid look to her mistress? How does a servant look to her, his master? He looks to him for everything. He looks to his hand for everything, for, for, for his provision, for his direction, for his comfort, for his Pointing to do this for his reward. Everything comes from his master's hand. As the eyes of a servant look to the hand of his master, so our eyes will look to the Lord our God until he shall be compassionate and gracious to us. That should be our mentality here. But here, whenever we take off our eyes, whenever we take our eyes off Jesus, and this is it. This is Peter took his eyes off Christ, he put them on the waves. He says, and when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And this is what, for makes, this is what makes little faith. If you want great faith, keep your eyes focused on Christ. Keep Christ before you at all times. If you want little faith, take your eyes off Christ, put them on the waves, and you'll go right smack dab into doubt and faith instantly. Taking your eyes off Jesus is what makes for little faith. But even if we do get our eyes off Christ and on the waves, there's still hope. And that's one of the things I love about this passage, As I've gone through this time and time and time again. The text records not only Peter's walking, and we have to give credit where credit is due here. Peter did walk. We well, doesn't say how many steps, but my friends, one step on the water would be quite a miracle. Peter did walk, but Peter also did sink. He began to sink. And the text records both of that, and I love how the Word of God is so honest like that. Still in verse 30, and beginning to sink, he cried out. And beginning to sink, he cried out. The text does not glorify Peter in his water walking or any of his good works or anything good he does. Nor does it condemn Peter for his weak faith and when he falls, because this story isn't ultimately about Peter. It's ultimately about our powerful and loving Savior, who was always there to rescue his fickle disciples who have no or little faith. It's about our Savior. It's about our mighty Savior. One of the major lessons in this whole section is that even if we take our eyes off Jesus, even if we fail, even when we fail, and we begin to sink, he never takes his eyes off of us. It's so clear. Jesus doesn't take his eyes off Peter. He doesn't hit him. He doesn't yell at him. He doesn't rebuke him. He's right there immediately. And all Peter does is he goes back to step number one. What's step number one? Faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. When our faith fails and we fall, he's still a faithful God. And even in spite of our little faith, he's always there He's always there to be Psalm 46, verse 1, an, a very present help in trouble. When you find yourself moving out into doubt and moving, looking at the waves and beginning to sink and your faith is faltering, cry out like Peter did. Lord, save me. Lord, save me. There's no need to have a really a, a, an eloquent prayer here. It's just a crying out. Save me, I'm drowning. Crying out to the Lord, that's what faith does. That's what faith does from the beginning to the end. Really, the Christian life is nothing more than a continual application of those basic things that were involved at our actual conversion. I love how Colossians says it. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How did you receive Christ Jesus as your Lord? I trust by faith. I trust by faith. A complete trust and commitment to Jesus by faith. Now so continue to walk in him that same basic way. By faith, by faith, trust in the Lord. And that's what Peter's doing right here. He's failed, he's walked well, now he's failed, but now he gets up again. And once again, the faith is reignited, refocused back on Christ. Lord, Lord Jesus, there it is Christ again. He's not talking to the other disciples in the boat. Lord Jesus, save me. And immediately he reached out his hand and he saved him. Someone has said that repetition is the mother of learning. (laughs) I would say amen to that. And some people, that's the only way we can learn anything is by repetition with a two-by-four. But um, repetition is the mother of learning. And now these disciples have been through two storms, two storms in a very short period of time, close, almost back to back. In the first storm, these disciples end up their whole time by asking, who, who, what? What sort of man is this? Who is this guy What sort of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? That's the end of that first storm. And in this storm, the disciples end up by saying, truly, you are the Son of God, and they worship him. Because now, they're quite a bit further down the road of walking with Jesus, and they've seen a lot more of his revelation of who he is, and they've responded a little bit more in faith, and they know you are the Son of God, you are the promised Messiah, and you're not... You're fully God and you're fully man. And we're going to worship you. We're going to worship you. Maybe you've never truly cried out to Jesus to save you. Don't be surprised. There's a lot of good people in our churches, a lot of religious evangelicals who've never cried out really for Christ to save them. Maybe you're just a nice, kind man, a natural man, living for yourself and your purposes and your goals. But you know you're not born again. You know you're not truly saved. Cry out to Jesus to save you. That's what the text says. Cry out, Lord, save me. And maybe you're a believer walking with the Lord. You're tired, you're wearied. God has placed you in circumstances that are sometimes beyond your ability to handle. And you're exhausted. Cry out to the Lord to save you. Are you looking to Jesus? Is he the focus of your faith or are the circumstances and the trials the focus of your faith? Do you know that you can trust him? Are you in the word? Are you in the word? Peter responded to the word of God. That's why Christians, as Christians, we've got to be in the word. How do we, we get our marching orders? How do we know how to act? How will we know how to be if we're not in the word? Are you in the word so you can respond in faith to the word? Are you walking in obedience to what God's asked you to do? I don't know who I'm, I don't really know who I'm speaking to here, but are you walking in obedience to what God's asked you to do? No matter how foolish it may sound, no matter how illogical it may be, no matter how unwise it may sound to even your family members, maybe even some in the, in the brothers that you know. Sometimes that's what God calls us to do: give up things. Give up our bank accounts, give up our houses, give up our retirements, and go serve the Lord in whatever capacity he may be asking you to do. And lastly, are you focused on the circumstances or the stormy winds? And are you focused on the circumstances and the stormy winds, or are you focused on the Lord of the circumstances? Remember, they're really, they're none of your business. The circumstances are not, the waves are not your business when you step out in obedience to what God has called you to do. Take your eyes off the circumstances and actively focus them on Christ. His love for you, he will never let you go. And his power to reach you again in any circumstance, in any situation, trust him again with your whole life and move out in obedience. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity to look at this text. And I pray, Lord, that you would have accomplished and still be accomplishing your purposes in all of your people. That you would build up Faith in you, in us, that we would have be a people with that continual gaze to you, in our circumstances, in these times of sorrow, when we' were smitten down and we can't tell top from bottom, that we would look to you with a real focused gaze of faith and trust in you. I pray that you would accomplish your purposes now in Jesus name, we pray.